Well, Brad Butler was a center fielder for the San Francisco Giants when he transferred to cross-state rivals, the Los Angeles Dodgers. And the first time he came back to his former home stadium, he was greeted with a mixture of cheers and boos. And soon even the cheers turned to boos because when uh, Butler came onto the field, he walked over to Tommy Lasorda, the manager for the Los Angeles Dodgers, and he hugged him in front of the entire stadium. Now, after the game, he was asked, why did you do that? And Butler said in his interview, I did it to turn a page on my career. I'm an L.A. Dodger now. I'm not a giant anymore. That just kind of solidified it. I wanted them to know I'm a Dodger. I wonder how many of us here who call ourselves Christians, who are believers in Christ, have done something similar where we've hugged Jesus, so to speak, in front of our friends, our family, our co-workers. Others to let them know we've turned a page. We've changed teams. You know, when a player changes teams, when they go back and play against their former teammates, they're not trying to help them score. In fact, they often play even harder against their former team than they do against anyone else. And when it comes to us, as we turn in our Bible to Ephesians chapter 5 today, what we're going to see is that as Christians, we've changed teams. And with the change in our loyalty, there's to be a change in our lives. We're, we're no longer to live in darkness, but instead we're called to walk in the light. Look with me in your Bible at Ephesians 5, 8 through 17. There it tells us, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful to even speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. As we look at these verses, Paul gives us a summary of the whole book. You'll recall when we began our series in the book of Ephesians, we saw that it can be broken down into two main sections. Chapters 1 through 3 deal with our position in Christ, what it means to be a believer. And then as we've moved into chapters 4 through 6, what we see is he tells us how we are to practice our position. And here in verse 8, Paul reminds us of our former position, and then he calls us uh, to practice what our present condition is, our present position. He says, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now, I want to remind you of what our position meant when we were in darkness. Earlier in Ephesians 2, Paul told us in verses 1 through 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. He went on to say in Ephesians 2.12, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now as believers, those who have been adopted into the family, made sons and daughters, children of God, he says our position has changed and with it there's to be a change in our practice. 
As we look at this contrast, this this call to live according to our new life in the light, it reminds me of something many of you will remember from back in August of 2010. You might recall in uh, August of 2010, there was the collapse of a mine in Chile. And there were 33 Chilean miners who were trapped underground. And as they desperately tried to discern whether or not anybody survived the collapse and uh, what could be done to possibly rescue these men, they drilled a, a small shaft down into an area where they thought they might be. And as the drill bit came back up after it broke all the way through to the mine, there was a note attached to it, and it said, We are fine in the refuge, the 33. And there was a time of massive celebration. The people on the surface said they're alive. Every one of them are alive. But there was a problem. They were still trapped underground, deep, deep underground. And so as they started the the rescue efforts, they knew they had to drill a, a larger shaft that would be able to bring the men up to the surface. And so in that small borehole that they made, they began to send down food and medicine and water, and they were pumping oxygen down below. At that point, the men underground had everything they needed to survive. But the problem was they were in the darkness. They were, they were underground and living in darkness. And as they were there and as the rescue efforts went on, you'll recall it took two months to uh, make a shaft big enough to bring these men up. And as preparations were made to bring these men up out of the darkness, there was a, a, a bunch of worry among the medical professionals. They said, these guys have been underground for two months. Their eyes have not had any uh, real light during this time. And, and how, how will they acclimate to the light? And beyond that, they had become worldwide celebrities during this time. Everybody was waiting for these men to come to the surface. And then you'll recall one of them had a special part of stress coming because his mistress and his wife had met above ground. <laughs> Remember that? Two women had rushed to the scene to see if this guy was okay, and as they were trying to decide who got to have information, one of them said, I'm his wife, and the other one said, well, I'm his girlfriend, and this guy underground knew what was waiting for him (laughs) when he came to the top. Now, with all these challenges facing them, having everything they needed to live underground, they could have said, you know, we're fine. We've kind of grown accustomed to the darkness. Life is going on just okay down here. But even with all of those challenges, they wanted to come out of the darkness and into the light. They knew that there was a better life waiting for them above ground, even with the challenges that came with it. And as Christians, we are those who have been saved from the darkness. And God calls on us to come out into the light, not only to live in the light, but also to be the light that shines into the darkness in the world around us. We find numerous places in the Bible where this is, is said to, to us as believers. First Peter 2.9 tells us, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Matthew 5.14-16 tells us, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure. This is a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And here in Ephesians 5, 9, Paul tells us what some of these good works are as he says, For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth. 
Now, this word goodness is, is defined as the achievement of moral excellence combined with a generous spirit. And if that's too hard to grasp, it simply means love in action. We're called as believers to be those who demonstrate love in our actions. Righteousness here means a rightness of character before God and a rightness of action before men. What it means is the change on the inside should be seen on the outside. People should be able to see at face value who we are as believers. Those who have been changed by Christ, that is to be seen in the way we live for Christ. Before Abraham Lincoln was president of the United States, he was an attorney. And he was in his office one day, and, and a, client, a potential client walked in to speak with Lincoln and his partner. And this young man presented a case, a lawsuit he wanted to file against a woman uh, for $600, which was a very large amount of money in that day. And as Lincoln and his partner heard the merits of the case, uh, this is what they told the young man. They said, uh, you have a great case, and we can no doubt, doubtless win it for you. But by winning the case, Lincoln and his partner knew that it would wipe this woman out. And she was a widow who had six children. This woman and her kids would have been destitute. And so Lincoln and his partner said to the man, even though we can win the case for you, some things that are right legally are not right morally. So we're going to give you some advice for which we will charge you nothing. We advise that a spry, energetic man like yourself try your hand at making $600 in some other way. You know, as we've talked about previously, there are times as believers we have a right to something that God then calls on us to give up. We may say, well, the world says this is my right, I get to do this. Things like retaliate when we're wronged, and yet we've seen God calls on us to forgive those who have wronged us. And as we look at verse 9, we see this uh, being built upon as it says that we are to have lives marked by truth. That we're to live in, in a way that reflects truth. Again, sometimes we give up things that are rightfully ours as believers. And when it comes to truth and it being demonstrated in our life, sometimes as Christians it's hard to apply, isn't it? It's illustrated by what happened when a man was in court. He was a defendant. He was being sworn in by the judge. And so the judge said, put your hand on the Bible, raise your right hand. And he said, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? And the man said, I do. Judge told him to be seated, and then he said, well, what do you have to say for yourself regarding what your, this accusation? And, and the defendant said, well, Your Honor, with all those limitations you just put on me, I don't think I have anything at all to say. <laughs> have you ever been in that situation? You know that by speaking the truth, that by uh, doing the right thing, it's going to cost you. There are consequences that may come for you. Well, what God says to us here is uh, we need to be those who live in truth. And sometimes it's going to cost us. Sometimes we think, well, I can hide this and get away with it. But the Bible tells us a lot of times the things that that we think we've gotten away with, the Bible's very clear, the things done in the dark will one day come to light. And whether we're ever discovered here on earth, when we stand before the Lord, we will, uh, everything will be brought to light. Rather than participating in these deeds of darkness, verse 10 says, we are to try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. The word for learn here means to find out, to test, to examine, literally to be approved by the truth. It was used of the testing of metals where you would go in and you would determine the purity of a metal. 
when you look in terms of what we're looking at here and what the world offers us versus what God is calling us to, the world many times offers us something that looks uh, you know, like it's something we should pursue. It looks valuable. It looks like it, it's something that we want. And yet what God says is, in terms of the things of the world versus what he's calling us to, the things of the world are cheap counterfeits. They have no lasting value. I wonder if anyone here has ever had the experience where you bought what you thought was a gold chain. And uh, as you put it around your neck and you began to wear it, congratulating yourself on that great bargain you got, over time as the electromagnetic plating wore away, did you have a kind of a green... Uh, your, your skin began to turn green. That's a cheap counterfeit. It appeared valuable, but over time, the, the value of something was, was revealed for what it really was. It was a cheap piece of costume jewelry. And when it comes to the deeds of darkness that the world offers us, that's what they are. They're cheap counterfeits. They promise fulfillment, but they have no lasting value. Verses 11 through 12 tell us, and do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. As you think about this idea of deeds that are exposed, we we see it in the news right now, don't we? Uh, You have all these political appointees that are being vetted. And they're, they're having hearings and people are digging into their past. And, and men and women who appeared on the surface to be uh, fine, suddenly they're withdrawing their names as the process is continuing or things are being brought to light where people are saying either there's something in your past or there's a conflict of interest here uh, that is going to disqualify you. As you think in terms of your life, what, what would you say, how well would you do in one of these political vettings? If people dug into every part of your life and your past, uh, what would be brought to the light? What would be the things that you thought nobody knew about that might be discovered? Now, when that happens, as it talks about God exposing the things in our life here, it's not to make a shameful spectacle of someone. The word expose means to convince, reprove, or rebuke. It's the idea of convicting somebody to bring about a confession of guilt, Now, a place where this is found is in 1 Corinthians 5. There, there was sin in the body of Christ. And and people, the the sin that was being done was exposed for the purpose of creating repentance. You see, whenever you see uh, conviction of sin in the scriptures, it's not where God's this punitive, crushing God who says, I'm going to get you. I'm going to make you, uh, you know, live in shame. It's always restorative. The goal is always restoration. Restoration to fellowship with one another in a church setting where somebody goes under church discipline and they're removed from the body to bring about repentance with the ultimate goal of bringing them back into full fellowship. And it's the same thing in our relationship with the Lord. God wants us to confess our sins, not so that he can say we're wretched and push us away. He already knew that. Remember our our former condition. But God demonstrated his own love for us while we were yet sinners. It says Christ died for us. He created the bridge back to God. And when it comes to our sin, you know, one of the things that I hear from believers often that that is a mistake is they say, you know, Roger, I I know when we die, we get to go to heaven, but I'm, I'm worried about, you know, when we first get there and my life is put on display. And many people imagine that it's going to be like a a movie screen where your whole life is put on display and everybody sitting around in heaven is going to look at you and go, (laughs) pretty pretty, uh, wretched life there. Uh, That's not how it works, friends. The Bible does say that we, we will have our lives reviewed, but it's by the Lord. 
It's not, it's not a public spectacle. The Bible says there are no tears in heaven. We're not going to sit there weeping and gnashing of teeth and say how wretched and, you know, I am. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west when we come to faith in him. And so what happens is the judgment for a believer found, in, in, the Greek word that is used is the bema seat, the bematos, and it speaks of a stand where we go before the Lord and the Bible says our life works, wood, hay, and stubble are burned up, and the precious things that remain are taken out, and those are the heavenly rewards that we are given. The judgment for a Christian is not to determine whether you get into heaven. Jesus already determined that at the cross. And when we place our faith in him, the ticket home is purchased. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What is our judgment is to determine our heavenly rewards and responsibilities in the millennial kingdom, that thousand year reign here on earth. So it's not a time of shame. It's a time where we hope to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And you're given the responsibilities that reflect the way you live for the Lord here on earth. When it comes to our sins as Christians, 1 John one twenty nine tells us when John the Baptist saw Christ coming, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He removes it. He cancels it. He paid for it. Some of you remember the Watergate uh, hearings during the Nixon administration. And when President Nixon uh, was undergoing investigation for the Watergate uh, break-in and the impeachment process and things that were going on, the evidence was looked at meticulously. Transcripts were read, recordings were listened to, uh, all the evidence was brought to light. All of the evidence, that is, except for uh, 18 and a half minutes of a tape recording, Because you'll recall that Nixon had a secretary named Rosemary Woods. And as she was uh, duplicating the tapes of the Oval Office and things for the investigators, there was a section of a tape that she uh, reportedly uh, accidentally hit the record button on and erased 18 and a half minutes of a tape. Now, even with all of the modern technology and the recovery efforts, uh, that section of recording has never been able to be Uh, found and and recovered. It's as if whatever was said never happened. When it comes to us and our sin, we have somebody in heaven who's much better than Rosemary Woods. Jesus Christ doesn't come in and erase 18 and a half minutes of your life, some mess or some sin you did. And he doesn't do a cover-up. What he does is he takes everything that we've ever done and he brings it into the light. When the, the Bible talks about Satan being the accuser of the brethren and he stands before the Lord and he points us out and he says, hey, do you know what Roger did? Do you know about this guy and all his sins? And Jesus Christ doesn't come in and look for a legal loophole and quash evidence and do all that. What he says is he stands there and goes, yeah, he did that. He's guilty, guilty, guilty. And then what Jesus Christ does is he shows his hands the nail scars in his hand. He shows the the spear wound in his side. He shows the puncture wounds in his feet. And he says, I died in Roger's place. I paid the penalty. He is guilty, and I am the propitiation. I am the payment. I took his place. I covered the sins, which is why I can say, remove the sins. The record is closed because the penalty has been paid. This is why Psalm 103.12 tells us, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. 
If you're here today and you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, I invite you to do so. I invite you to come to the cross and say to God, God, I've messed up. I've made uh, a mess of my life in these areas. I've committed these sins. That's called confession. And then what God says is I want you to repent of those sins. Repentance means where we have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. So what it, it pictures is we're literally going in this direction, walking away from God. And we see our sin for what it is, separating us from God. And we stop and we turn around and we come to the cross. And as we come to the cross of Christ, we find his arms are open wide. Not because the nails are still holding him there. He's waiting to receive us and accept you as his son or his daughter. He says, your sins have been covered. I've paid for them in full. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He offers you that gift today. We're welcomed home into heaven, not because of our works. Titus chapter 3 verses <coughs> excuse me, 5 through 7 tell us this. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When it comes to this hope of eternal life, Ephesians 5, uh, 13 through 14 tells us, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. There was a pastor, as he was preaching one day, he, he saw a man in the, the pews kind of, you know, his head was kind of moving around, nodding like some of you are doing right now. And uh, the guy kind of stands up and he walks out of the church and, and goes out the back door. Now, the sermon was over and the pastor uh, goes out to the, the narthex, the foyer of the church afterwards, and he sees the man's wife and he goes up to her and he says, is, is your husband okay? I, I, I kind of saw him, you know, not looking too good. And then he got up and walked out during the sermon. And she said, oh, oh pastor, he's fine. He said he just has a, ha uh, a habit of walking in his sleep. <laughs> I can joke about some of you sleeping uh, during a sermon, but Paul tells us here it's not a joke. What he says is when we live our lives like this, he tells us to wake up out of our spiritual stupor. He says, come out of the darkness and into the light. As he writes in verse 14, what he's doing is he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 60 in verse, 20, in verse 1. In Isaiah 60 verse 1, it says, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. That passage in Isaiah has a twofold application. It spoke directly of a time uh, of the nation of Israel as they were being freed out of the Babylonian captivity. And it also looks ahead. It's a dual fulfillment prophecy of the time when Christ will return to the earth at his second coming and establish the millennial kingdom, that thousand year reign here on the earth. In Isaiah 60 verse 3, it goes on to say, nations will come to your light. The Bible speaks of how Christ will be seated on the Davidic throne in Jerusalem, physically present here on the earth. And it says the nations will come and present themselves to the Lord here on the earth during that time. And as Christians, what we're called to do is be the source of God's light in the present age. That is a dispensation, a, a period of time to come when God will operate in a new way 
as we talked about in Ephesians chapter 1. But he says right now, where we are in this present age, we're to be the light. Christ is not physically here, but he's given us as his presence. Now, as Christians, I think many of us are, are pretty good at being the light when it comes to being like the taillights on a car. You know what the taillights on a car do? They, sing, they signal when you break, right? Stop. You're supposed to stop. You don't, don't do this. And, and some of us even know how to use a turn signal, right? And so we, we tell somebody, this is the way to go. We're about to turn right or left in this situation. But God wants us as, as Christians to be not just like the lights on the, the back of a car. Those things are important. But he also says he wants us to be like the headlights, those things that shine into the darkness, that reveal the way, that, that point the way that we're to go. When it comes to being like the, the lights, um, I think of what Benjamin Franklin did back in the days when he lived in Philadelphia. Franklin, as you know, was a statesman, an inventor, all kinds of things. And uh, as he lived there in Philadelphia, he, he knew that the city was dark at night and the uneven cobblestones and the various things. It was dangerous. People would trip. There was crime uh, in the darkness. So Franklin advocated that they begin to light the streets at night. And he tried to get the, the city leaders to put up lanterns around the city. And they said, you know, that's not going to do much and it's going to cost money and it's not, not worth doing. So no matter how much Franklin tried to get people to do it, he was unsuccessful. So he finally decided to just do it himself in front of his house. And he went and got a lantern and he put it on a long hook in front of his house. And as darkness fell, he would go out and he would light the wick and it would bathe the area in front of his house in light. And as people were walking down the dark street and as they approached this area, they, they could see clearly. And they weren't tripping and uh, they felt safe in that area. In fact, people would begin to gather in front of Franklin's home, just enjoying uh, that place of light. And soon some of the other neighbors around started to emulate his example. Somebody put a lantern up a couple houses to the right. Somebody did it to the left. And soon many of the neighbors along that street were putting out lights at night and the whole street was lit. And before long, the whole city was copying his example and lights were popping up all over. And people saw the value of what Franklin was advocating. And our modern streetlight system today is tied back to one man who decided to let his light shine in the darkness. As you think in terms of your light and the darkness, the place where maybe God has placed you, your neighborhood, your school setting, your workplace, the base or place where you serve, what, what would happen if you would let your light shine? What would happen if you began to become an example and others were to see the value of what it is that you were doing? When it comes to letting our light shine, we see there's an urgency because verses 15 through 16 tell us, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. This word careful here means to be accurate and exact. It, it's the idea of looking and examining and investigating something with great care. This, this would be wonderful if we lived in a day and age where social media or the news did this, wouldn't it? Instead of being the first to post something or rushing to report something, what if people actually checked their facts first? What if people were to discern and, and accurately and carefully report something? How much of the, the mess in our society would be removed? This word means to be alert. 
the picture that you can maybe use here is to think of the world as a minefield. And all around are hidden mines and trap wires and various things. And if you were to have to walk through a, a field that you knew was uh, sown with all these hidden explosives, would you like to do that in the middle of the darkest part of the night with no light? Or would you rather navigate it during the day when you could see where the mounds were piled up and see the trip wires uh, that were out there? This is the picture that God is giving us. He tells us we're living in a world where the days are evil. He says it's a minefield and we have to navigate it. And he says we are not only to come into the light and take advantage of it, but we are to be the light and show other people the way. You see, it's not enough just for us to say, well, I'm going to get in my holy huddle and we're going to just kind of make it from here to there and we're going to get from earth to heaven and we're okay and not worry about everybody else. What he says is we've been placed here on a rescue mission. Remember the Great Commission? Jesus Christ told us to go and make disciples of all the nations. He says we're here for a period of time in order to share the good news of the gospel. Some of your translations of these verses speak of seeking every opportunity. The Greek word that is used there literally means toward the port. It was used of a ship that would load passengers and cargo and it would take it from one place into the port, a place of safety, and unload them in that other location. And so that ship would take advantage of the wind and the tide to arrive safely in the harbor. And here we're told our time here on earth is short. It tells us that we only have a limited window. Now it's not, the Greek word for time here is not chronos, like the ticks on your, your clock or maybe even a page on the calendar. It's kairos. It speaks of a, an age, a period of time. Remember, I just mentioned the dispensations from chapter 1, and there's this one coming called the millennial kingdom. God says right now we are in the church age. We are in this time that will end when the rapture occurs and Christians are taken from the earth, and then the tribulation, that seven-year period of great suffering and turmoil on the earth takes place before the return of Christ at the second coming and then the millennium. And he says, as believers who are in this time period, we have the opportunity to share the good news and to bring people toward the port, the place of ultimate destination of safety into heaven. Now, given that our time is limited to do God's work, it says we're to make the most of it. Uh, The Greek word used here is ekagorazo. And this word literally means to buy out of the marketplace. It was used to speak of a slave that was put on the slave block and a person would purchase the individual not to indenture them and use them, but to then set them free. And the Bible says that we are slaves to sin. The world itself is groaning under the the effects of sin and it's longing for that day of redemption, Romans tells us. And so what it says is we who are believers have the opportunity to help those be purchased out of the slave market, to point as lights, to share the good news of the gospel so that they can be set free. Galatians 6.10 tells us, So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. As you think about your life, are you seizing every opportunity? Now, you may be sitting here this morning saying, well, you know, Roger, I I really don't have opportunities to share the gospel. You know, there's a saying, if opportunity doesn't knock, then build a door, right? Are you seeking opportunities? Are you creating opportunities? 
Do you wake up every morning and say, Lord, would you give me one opportunity this morning, today, sometime in this day, to share the good news of the gospel? God, would you give me the courage to talk to my friend, my coworker, uh, that person that I, I know is going through some difficult times? Would you help me today, God, to have the right opening to share the good news of the gospel? You know, there are all kinds of opportunities. The question is, are we seizing them? Uh, recently, we had this tragedy where there was the, the shooting at Roland Oaks Mall. Remember that? There was a man who was killed in a robbery attempt. And many people got on Facebook and were marking themselves safe. And others were coming on and going, what are you safe from? What's going on? Oh, there's a thing in San Antonio. What, what, what happened? And people didn't even know. And then maybe you were talking to a friend who said, gosh, that could have been me. I, I was just in that mall last week. Or I've shopped in that store. Or I've been there. Or where's the next place? Did any of you have conversations like that? Did you see that as an opportunity? An opportunity to say to the person in a gentle but, but loving way, what if that had been you? What if you had been in that store? What if you were the person who was shot and killed at that moment? Where would you have gone? And if it would have been heaven that you think you would have gone to, what would you say to God? Why do you think God would have let you into heaven? And at that moment, you stop and you listen. And you let the person tell you, well, I've been pretty good and I go to church and I did that nice thing once. And remember what we read in Titus? It's not based on our deeds of righteousness. In fact, Paul's made very clear earlier in Ephesians. He said in 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. Do you seize the opportunities that God presents to you? Are you looking to redeem the time that we have? We don't know when the opportunities we have will be taken from us. We're told the days are evil. We see that in the news. Ephesians 5.17 tells us, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. God's will is revealed for us here. He says to walk in the light and expose others to the light. And he says if we don't do this, he says we're fools. Now, this word is a stronger word than he used back in verse 15. In verse 15, he talked about us being unwise. But here this word literally means to be stupid or imprudent. Sorry, I know that's not a good word for some, but uh, God says it. He says when we don't seize these things, we're being stupid. We're being imprudent. It, it means literally to have senseless folly in action. And this goes back to what we talked about earlier. What is it you're pursuing in life? Are you being foolish? Are, are you spending your time, efforts, and energy on pursuing property and prestige and power and all these things that the world says, hey, this is what you should spend your life on? God says those things pass away, friends. There are only two things that last for eternity on this earth, the souls of men and women and the word of God. And he says that's what we should be investing in. Those are the things that we should be pursuing that have eternal impact. Many of you have heard of Jim Elliot, the famous missionary who gave his life for the gospel. And he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep our lives to gain what we cannot lose. The eternal rewards of heaven. This word for understand here means to give your mind to something and to get hold of it. 
It, it has more than an, uh, the meaning of just having head knowledge. There are all kinds of different Greek words. One is oida, which means to know something. And then there's gnosko, which means to know something that leads to an experiential grasping of it. This word is in that same uh, family of words. It means that we are to understand what God is saying and not just say, oh, that's nice. That was a good, good sermon on Sunday and forget about it. He says, we're to know, we're to grasp it, we're to act on it. Let me illustrate what it means for us this way. Back in uh, July of 1976, some of you will remember there was a situation where there was a plane that was hijacked and it was taken to Entebbe, Uganda. And on this plane were uh, over 300 passengers. And as they landed the plane in Entebbe, Uganda, they let over 250 of the passengers go who were not Jewish, and they kept 103 Jewish hostages, and they moved them into a hangar there in Entebbe, Uganda. And they were threatening to kill this hundred and, these 103 Jewish hostages unless there were over 50 militants that were to be let go over in the Middle East. And as negotiations were going and, and uh, things were breaking down, Israel sent uh, a team of crack commandos into Uganda, and they flew into the airport and they landed and within 15 minutes they accomplished an operation where they stormed the airport hangar and they killed all of the kidnappers and set the hostages free. And the way that they did that is as they rushed into the hangar, they were yelling out in Hebrew, get down, get down. Now the kidnappers who were not Jewish did not understand Hebrew. And so as the command was given to get down, uh, the majority of the Jewish hostages dropped to the floor and the commandos just opened up shooting everybody who was standing, killing all of the kidnappers. Now, unfortunately, there were three of the hostages who were also killed. One of them was a young man who had actually been on the ground and he stood up for some unknown reason. And the other two hesitated, possibly being confused by the man uh, or just not responding to what they were hearing. Had those three understood, heard, and acted upon it, they too could have been saved. But instead they lost their lives, as well as one of the commandos, Netanyahu's brother, as you'll recall, was killed saving the hostages. But there was the freeing of these other hostages because they understood and they acted upon what they had heard. We live in a world where there are many who do not fully understand what Jesus Christ has done. Some have no knowledge of it. They've not heard a clear presentation of the gospel. And God calls on us as his people to be the light, the messengers who will shine the light into the darkness. That's what he's calling on us to do today. And today as we come to the communion table, what we're remembering and celebrating is what God did for us how he went on a rescue mission for us. How God was willing to leave his place in heaven, his throne of glory, to come down here to earth, to give his life in order to give us the gift of life. I mentioned that Netanyahu's brother was killed in that raid. The Bible tells us that possibly even a man will die for a friend. Jesus Christ's friends did not die for a friend. He died for his enemies. You and I were his enemies. We were sinners. We were in rebellion. We were far from God. But he didn't reject us. He didn't leave us in our condition lost. 
But Romans 5 eight tells us he demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He went to the cross. He declared us guilty, said we have sinned. There was no cover up. And he said, the penalty has to be paid and I will do it for you. I will take your place. And that's what we remember today. As we come to this communion table, you're about to take a piece of bread representing the body of Christ, the one who gave his life for us, and a cup representing his blood that was shed to wash away our sins. If you're here today and you've never received that gift of new life, I invite you today to do so. To take the bread as it comes by, to take the cup and to say to God, today, God, I'm turning from my sin and to you to be my savior. This is a table that is open to all who are believers. You don't have to be a part of Wayside, just a member of the family of God, a Christian. And today you can become one, if you've never done that, to take that step of faith, to turn from your sin and to Jesus to be your Savior. If you'd like to do that, take the elements and tell God what you're doing. For the rest of us who have come to faith in the past, this is a time for us to examine our hearts, confess our sins, and prepare to come to the table. Will you serve us, please?
John the Baptist saw Jesus coming. He said in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What we hold in our hand now is a representation of that gift, that sacrifice of Christ, the one who gave his life to give us the gift of new life, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't remind us of him. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that the shedding of blood is necessary for the remission of sin. It also goes on to tell us that the shedding of the blood of the sacrifices of the temple, the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and sacrifices offered, could not remove the penalty of sin. Only the perfect and permanent Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, could do that. And so he shed his blood. He gave his life to wash away our sins to remove the division, to provide the bridge home. Christ was the one who said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so he gave his life so that we could have the gift of eternal life. Drink this in remembrance of him. You join me, please, as we close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this gift, this gift of eternal life through your son, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that you loved us enough to leave your throne in heaven, to come on a rescue mission that you knew would cost you your life. And yet you humbled yourself and you became obedient to the point of death and you gave your life to conquer sin and death on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, that you've risen from the dead and you're waiting in heaven to return to get us one day. But until that time, you've given us a mission. You've sent us on a rescue mission to go and be the light in a dark and dying world. And so would we be faithful, Father? Would we be those who look for those opportunities that you've given to us? Would we be dependent upon you to share the good news? And Lord, would you use us in ways to share the light to spread the good news of forgiveness through sins through your Son. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Will you stand please and sing this closing song of worship?